Carl, and we are glad you've joined our church and others that would like to join our church, just look for the next membership class. I want to say a big thank you to all of you here and all of you online as well. Over the last few months, you've been very faithful in your tithing and in your giving. We don't talk a lot about money here. I just don't like doing it a lot on Sundays, but um, I just want to say thank you. The elders want to say thank you. The staff wants to say thank you for your tithes and offerings. Every week we have offering boxes all over. Many of you do it online or you send it in or you give it here. And it, it's been very helpful. Thank you very much. And it's important to know also a big thank you for your donations to Ukraine. Two months ago we started that and we have raised over $100,000 over and above. I think that is fantastic. <clears throat> It's, it's now, and I can't give you the exact number because it changes every day. More people are donating and it keeps going. We keep giving it. We have channels to do it that are there, and we're going to even explain more things that we're doing over there as well as the summer rolls on because there's needs that keep going, and they're not all just about money. There's other needs, and we're working over there with our partners as well. And then with City House, wasn't that fantastic what happened two weeks ago? Thank you very much. And we were trying to get, I thought, maybe twenty-five or 30000 It was 65000 And to realize it's right on the backs of asking you for money for Ukraine and asking you for donations for the church. So I just want to say thank you. Appreciate all that you do. And those of you online, those of you here don't realize that we have a vibrant group of people online. I just want to say thank you for you. Many of you can't come because of health, and some of you are even in other parts of our country or in the world, and you still are part of our church and donate to our church. And many are on Zoom Bible studies. Some of you don't know that. We still do a couple of Zoom Bible studies during the week for those who have become a part of our church that don't reside in South Florida. And so we appreciate all the work you have done as well. Well, today we're going to get into our story again. We're still in Easter the places of Easter. Uh, we started in the upper room a few weeks ago, and then we moved to the city, and Matthew McDaniel shared about Palm Sunday and the coming of the city. And then we talked about the Garden of Gethsemane and all that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and leading up to the crucifixion. And then on uh, Good Friday, we talked about the cross and the implications of the death of Christ. And then, of course, last week, Easter Sunday, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. Today, we're going to talk about the road, and we'll get to that in just a moment. And then next week will be the last uh, discussion, and it'll be about the world. Jesus said, go into all the world. Some of his last words were, leave Jerusalem and go to other places, go to the world. What did that mean back then? And what does it mean today, or what, did it, what does it mean today for us as well? So we're gonna look at that next week. And then after that, we're gonna move on to some other things that we'll describe next week. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24, and we're gonna read the story. Elizabeth's actually gonna read it for us. Uh, the road to Emmaus, and that whole story around it. Right now, it's the afternoon of the resurrection. It's Sunday afternoon, same day, and she's going to read what Jesus did. Good morning, church family. Join with me as we read Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, 
Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the roll, while he opened up the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Amen. This is an amazing story that occurred just hours after Jesus had risen from the dead. It's a beautiful story. It's a story of two men leaving Jerusalem and going to Emmaus about seven miles northeast of Jerusalem. And you go, why were they leaving? Why were they going if all this thing was happening in Jerusalem? And we need to realize there were two groups of people that were followers of Christ on this morning and this afternoon. The first group were hiding out in Jerusalem. They weren't out exposing, they weren't out talking, they weren't out singing, crown him with many crowns, none of that, the hallelujah chorus, none of that. They were hiding because they were afraid they might be next. And then there was another group of people that decided to leave Jerusalem and go to other places where it was a little quieter and there were not so many issues. And that's what these two guys did. One is named Cleopas and the other we have no idea what the person's name is. And we only know of Cleopas in this section. Now you go, who was he? Well, Cleopas is the masculine name of a feminine name, and the feminine name is Cleopatra. Cleopatra, Cleopas. If you know and remember Cleopatra, two generations before this, so this man's grandparents' age, she was the queen of Egypt. She connected with a general of Rome named Mark Antony, and they fought against another general of Rome named Octavian. Octavian beat Cleopatra and Mark Antony. And if you recall your history, Mark Antony killed himself with a sword, and it's supposed that Cleopatra killed herself with a poisonous snake because they knew they were going to be killed by Octavian. When Octavian became Caesar, he changed his name to Augustus. Caesar Augustus of Luke chapter 2, that all the world should be taxed. So the Caesar that was there at the birth of Christ beat out Cleopatra and Mark Anthony to become the emperor of Rome. Why do I say this? Because possibly Cleopas's parents, who were probably children then, and grandparents came from Egypt. Why would you name somebody an Egyptian name? They were Jewish, but they were Egyptian. And so you can understand why they were thinking, Cleopas was thinking that when Jesus of Nazareth came, he had come to take back the country because, you know, they wanted two generations ago to take back the country. They wanted to get rid of Rome and that type of thing. It didn't happen. And when Jesus didn't take over Rome and the Roman government, but was in fact killed by them, You can see the discouragement, and you can see why they didn't want to stay in Jerusalem. They wanted to leave. But they were followers, and they were figuring this out. Now, here they are walking. Think about it. They're in their robes and their togas, whatever they were wearing. And it takes about uh, 20 minutes to walk a mile, right? You can do three miles an hour nowadays if you just walk casually, maybe two and a half miles. So this was going to be a two- or three-hour walk back to Emmaus. We don't know if it's Cleopas's house or the unnamed man's house. And in walks Jesus into the road and into the conversation. You go, well, that's kind of abnormal. It really isn't. I don't know. Do any of you walk? Nowadays in America, we don't walk, do we? Well, Elizabeth and I like to hike. 
And so three years ago, we were hiking and we decided we were, going, we were going from one small town to another small town. It was about five miles in the mountains. And what's fun about mountain hiking is you don't have to go like this if you find the valleys. You can look at all the beautiful mountains and still stay pretty flat. And so we found this, this trail. And so Anna was with us, the three of us. We had our lunch on my back and uh, we took off for a walk. And all of a sudden, a couple came over to us and they go, are you walking to the next town? We said, yes. And they said, can we join you? Yes. And they said, are you a Christian? Now, we were in another country. Are you a Christian? And then I forgot, I had a hat that said World Vision on it. And because I always wear baseball caps to cover my forehead from the sun. And so I said, yes. And they said, well, we graduated Wheaton College, and off the conversation went. And what was amazing was, okay, we never heard of them, never met them, didn't know anybody, and yet we walked together to the town, walked up a little, had lunch together, walked back, came back down. They were staying at the same hotel we were staying at, unbeknownst to us. We had dinner with them. The next day, I wanted to do an actual steep climb, and so did the guy. And so we said, why don't you ladies meet us at the top, with transportation, and we'll walk. We were with them for four days. And you go, and it was nothing abnormal. It was just kind of very normal to do it. Why? Because we had some things in common with them, and it was an incredible time. Well, Jesus comes into this conversation and just jumps in. What are you guys talking about? Why are you talking about this? All these things. Now, it's interesting. They just jump in and go, you haven't heard, and then the conversation takes off. Think about Jesus. Do you remember in his ministry, he spoke to five different groups of people? And I'm not talking about Pilate and Herod, but in his ministry, if you read the Gospels, there's five different groups of people he spoke to. He spoke one-on-one to people. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the rich young ruler. Some followed him and some walked away from him, but he did talk one-on-one. Then he had a group of three that were very important, his inner circle. Do you remember who they were? Peter, James, and John. They were the three. He did some things with them. And then, of course, there's the 12 disciples, 11 of whom became apostles. And then along with Mattathias and Acts, there were 12 apostles. So you have the ones, the three, the 12. And then there was a group of 70. Now, was it exactly 70 or was it how we say nowadays, there were a hundred there? If you ever say anything, how many were at the meeting? There was a hundred. Nobody counts. If there were 90, if there were 110, we always say there were a hundred, right? Or in here, you might say there are a thousand people here. Well, there aren't exactly a thousand people here, but we kind of say there's a thousand people because that's the way we think. We think in ones and zeros. They thought in sevens and zeros back then. So they, there were 70. I don't know if it was 72 or 80 or 65, but there were a group of disciples. Who was in that group? Mary Magdalene was in that group. Mattathias, who became an apostle, was in that group. Stephen was in that group. And I believe Cleopas and his buddy was in, were in that group. These were the 70. We only know the 12 names and a couple of other names, but there were about 70 who were following Christ in Jerusalem. And then if you're writing this down, the fifth group Jesus talked to were the thousands. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, the coming in um, 
on the, the um, sorry, the hills, on the Sermon on the Mount. There were hundreds and maybe even thousands listening to him. And then again on Palm Sunday, as Matthew described, that whole scene of the people lining the streets from by uh, Bethany down to the Mount of Olives and up into the city. There were probably thousands of people there. Jesus spoke to the ones, the threes, the twelves, the seventy, and the thousands. I believe Cleopas and his buddy were in the 70. They were followers of Christ, but now they're disillusioned, and they're walking along, and what does Jesus do? He says, let me open up how this Jesus of Nazareth is talking about Moses, the prophets, and then later on, he talks about the law of Moses. Now, this week, Elizabeth and I had the privilege to do something we have never done before. We went to the Museum of the Bible. Has anybody been to the Museum of the Bible? Isn't that one cool place? So we had meetings in Washington, and they were on the top floor. They have some conference rooms up there. So our meetings were in the Museum of the Bible, but we were in these meetings all day, and then finally we got to spend a couple hours to walk through. If you get an opportunity, it's amazing. And if you only have a short time, go to the one where the Bibles are. They have a lot of displays at six floors, but the floor with the Bibles is really cool. So Afterwards, we, or we walked around, and we were with our group, and the curator of the museum came and told us about the museum and gave us kind of the, the why behind it, the how behind it. And then he started talking about the Bible, not about how to display the Bible. He talked about the displays and all of that and how they got all of it and all that, but he talked about the Bible. And I had been finishing up my sermon earlier in the week about the road to Emmaus. And of all the passages of Scripture he could have referenced, he talked about the road to Emmaus. I'm like, there he is, a curator. I'm sitting here with 30 people, Elizabeth and me, and he's talking about the road to Emmaus. Unbelievable. So afterwards, we go to lunch. And we're sitting at these tables, and he came and ate with us. And there was a table of four, and he was sitting there, another guy, and Elizabeth and me. We were by ourselves with the curator. I said, I'm not going to talk about the Museum of the Bible. I'm not going to talk about all these old transcripts that my buddy here and I love to talk about. I'm going to talk about the road to Emmaus. And it was amazing. You know what he said? He said, think about it. He said, did you go downstairs and see the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls? They have a facsimile of it. The original is in Jerusalem. But up until 1948, the world thought that Isaiah 53 was not in the Bible. Did you know that? Isaiah 53 was not in the Bible because it was so close to describing Jesus It had to be written after the fact about Jesus. Now, you and I don't believe that, but the earliest transcript, or sorry, manuscript of the book of Isaiah before 1948 was 1000 AD. Now, it was written in 700 BC, but the earliest actual pieces of paper we had was 1000 AD. And so it could have easily been added to Isaiah so that we as Christians could say, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah. Can I read it to you? Isaiah 53. You don't have to turn there. You might know it if you want to turn there or write it later. It says this, who has believed 
what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is what he's talking. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty. It's quoting Matthew here, that we should look on him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment of us all. Sorry, I misquoted that. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. It keeps going on. That sounds like it was written after the fact, doesn't it? This is the story of what we commemorated last week and at Good Friday and what we celebrated Easter morning. This is that story. It must have been written after the fact until 1948 when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. A young boy found them in Qumran, and you might know the story too long to describe, but they found all these scrolls that were transcribed in 200 B.C., 200 years before Christ, still 500 years after the original, but 200 years before. And do you know what? Isaiah 53 is word for word in the Hebrew as it is today in the Hebrew that that was translated in. Not changed, not added. 1000 AD, you might have added it because it is so close. And so here Jesus is talking to these two guys And he's quoting Isaiah, and you know what I think he's saying? That's me. But he didn't say that right then because they didn't know it was him. They were saying, that's the Jesus of Nazareth. My friends, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So we continue to talk, the curator and Elizabeth and me, and he goes, think of the book of Acts. Now, my whole study was in the book of Luke. He goes, think of Acts. Acts chapter 3, Peter preached a sermon. Peter's first sermon after all the denials and all the pain and the restoration with Jesus was about the fact that Jesus is fulfilled from Abraham, from Moses, and from David. It's Acts chapter 3. You got to read it. And then Acts chapter 7 is Stephen. And what has Stephen talked about that he was stoned for? That Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and David. So what was that? We talked about it last week. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was that out of your family was the whole world going to be blessed. It was a prediction of the coming of the Messiah. Do you remember that last week? And that's what the scriptures say, and that's what Jesus was teaching them, I believe. And then you get to Moses, and what's Moses about? The Passover lamb. Well, I just read about the Passover lamb. It's the reality that he was going to take his people to the promised land, and the whole Passover lamb, and Jesus was that Passover lamb, the Messiah, the Christ. And then you get to David, and what do we learn about David? That there's going to be a kingdom that will never end, right? 
And the kingdom that Christ brings will never end. And then you get to Isaiah, and I'm not even going to Micah or Nahum or some of the other smaller prophets that he was probably talking about on this three or four hour journey. But in Isaiah, Isaiah, I'm sure Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53 to him. And they're going, wow. And it's all opening up. And it's talked about, oh, and then in Acts chapter 8, remember Philip and the eunuch? Acts chapter 8 is Isaiah 53. Oh, but that was added later, people say. That was added maybe 100 years later. No, it is the truth. Jesus is the person referenced in Isaiah 53. And Jesus is telling them these things without them knowing that it's even Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So they're walking along and going through this. And I'm sitting there hearing this curator of a museum in Washington, third largest museum in Washington, I'm told, in terms of square footage. And he's saying, the Bible is the word of God. And the Bible speaks about the Messiah, the word of God. Now, last week, Elizabeth and I had guests, and we asked you to just pray for our friends. And you brought friends to church, and maybe you've come back from last week. And we are glad you're here. And one of the gentlemen, uh, he was Jewish, who was here, and not a churchgoer, obviously, and not a believer in the Christ of the Bible. And afterwards, after I, I went back to my seat. I didn't know if you noticed. I didn't come out. I went back to my seat because I had people I wanted to talk to. And he looked at me and he said, there's going to be a question I'm going to ask at the end of the day when the Messiah comes. He said, is this your first time coming or is this your second time coming? And I've got to tell you, that is the question. Even non-believers believe the Messiah is coming, many of them. But I believe he already came. And when he comes, he's coming again, the second coming. What a great observation from a man who's not a believer in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But he's going to ask that question. And you know what my response is? It might be too late at that point. Answer that question now. Don't answer it later on. So Jesus keeps talking. And he comes to a point where he's pretending like he's going to go farther. And they go off into Emmaus. And they go, come with us to dinner. Come with us to dinner. And so he sits down with them. Now think about it. Have you ever thought about Jesus in dinner? Because there's two dinners in this very short passage that Elizabeth read. There's a dinner at Emmaus, and then there's a dinner back in Jerusalem where Jesus ate the broiled fish. Two dinners in this short passage. Why is dinner so important? Jesus did three things at mealtime that's recorded in the Bible. First of all, he did miracles at mealtime. Feeding of the 5,000, turning water into wine. He did some miracles at dinner. There were some amazing things. The second thing he did at dinner, there was some religious, and I use that word in quotes, sacramental if you want a big word. He did some sacraments at dinner. There was Passover. He instituted the Last Supper, which is communion or the Lord's table. Uh, you might call it the Eucharist, whatever, the water and, or the, excuse me, the, the wine and the bread, and instituted that at dinner. So it was the important but most times when Jesus went to dinner, it was a common meal, a common meal. 
broiled fish. They did it. So when he broke the bread and prayed for it, he wasn't taking communion at Emmaus. It was just their poor dinner. They didn't have steak. They didn't have fish. They had bread and some other things and probably a fruit or two, and he broke it and prayed. It was a common meal. I want to digress for a moment, if I could, just an application here. You need to realize that the common meal is a great opportunity to share Christ. We in America don't get this. Why? Because we don't eat together anymore. Our kids rush in from sports. We rush in at different times, and we're all eating at different times. Or we eat quickly so that we can get back to whatever's on that box. It's not a box anymore. It's like a picture thing. We call it a television, whatever that is, um, thing that we should just break and take away. If you want to know what I really think about TV, ask me another time. (laughs) We went 35 years without a television in our house, just so you know. I raised five, we raised five kids without TV. So, um, and they ended up pretty smart, but they didn't end up listening to all that garbage. That's not the sermon, sorry, I digress too far. (laughs) I'm going to digress only shortly, dinner. Can I say that there's so much you can do at a meal that you can't do on the telephone, on the text, on the email, or even walking with someone, which is a great way to talk, but at a meal because it breaks down barriers. It allows you to talk. You can't just talk business. You can talk. One of my favorite people of the 20th century is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, killed by Hitler because he was trying to stop Nazism and the killing of the Jews and all the rest. A great story, I can't get into it, but when he was a child, he was the only believer in his family. His father was a friend of Sigmund Freud and the number one psychiatrist in Berlin in the early 20th century. That's his father. His older brother was a scientist who worked with Albert Einstein, his assistant. Okay. His other brother-in-law was the attorney for Lufthansa. Okay, this is a pretty smart family. None of them were believers. In comes younger Dietrich, and he had to share Christ in that setting. And can I say every one of them came, became believers before the end of the day. Sister-in-laws, brother-in-laws, and before he ended up being incarcerated and then concentration camp and killed, his family came to Christ. And he wrote long before he was incarcerated that it was the family dinner that did it. My friends, you want to reach your family, do it over dinner. There is an opportunity to do it. It's not the only place but it is an incredible place. And those of you that want to build a biblical worldview into your grandchildren, into your children, into your nieces and nephews, into your, each other, into yourself, do it at dinner. 
have a time. It's not about the food because one of them was just bread. The other one was broiled fish. It's not about the food, but have dinner where there is no ending every once in a while. Maybe once a week, maybe twice a week. Talk to your children, talk to your grandchildren, talk to your spouse, talk to your friends. If you're not married, get people together and go, let's have dinner and there's no end to this dinner. If it lasts for four hours or three hours, so be it. It is an incredible opportunity to share what God is doing in their life and in your life. That is all free, but I tell you what, if you walk out with nothing else, remember that you can change people's lives at dinner that you can't do at other places because you're not going to scream at somebody at dinner. You're not going to yell at somebody at dinner. You're going to just talk, and it's a great opportunity. Now, back to the story. Jesus sits there and prays, and they go, It's Jesus. The scales come off. So what do they do? Jesus takes off. I love Jesus is like the best, right? He does this, gone. He's gone. Okay. And what do they do? They walk back. I don't think they walk at three miles an hour, but they're not runners. They're not Greeks. They're Jews. They're not the runners, but they walk back fast. And where did they go? They went back to where all the disciples were, not just the 11, but also others. And they said, we have learned. And what did they start talking to them about? About Moses, about the scriptures, about David, about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're talking about him. And all of a sudden, what happens? Jesus appears. And what does Jesus talk about? The law of Moses and uh, the Torah. And he talks about the Psalms, Psalm 22 probably, and some of the other Psalms. And he's talking about Isaiah. He's talking about the prophets. And finally... The Bible says here, it's so beautiful when they say it. Then, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Isn't that beautiful? All these people were confused. I thought he came for this, but he came for that. I thought he was going to take over and be the Messiah of Rome, of the Jews against Rome, but he ended up not. All these things, and all of a sudden, their eyes opened. And the scales, whatever they were on their eyes, ended. Because I got to tell you, the church of Jesus Christ grew out of that ragtag group in the upper room. Was it by then only 40? Was it only 30? I mean, how many people had gone to other cities and never came back? It was a small group. And from that small group, you have a movement that took over the world. Because these people understood the scriptures. And what did they understand? That Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Christ. And I think that's a beautiful thing that we need to understand. Our time is up. We could go on and on about this. Next week, we're going to go, what did they do with all this information they had? Then Jesus says, go into all the world with all this information and with this understanding. And we'll talk about that next week. I want to close with a story I've told many times. It's like I I tell this story way too many times, but it applies to today. Twelve years ago, I went to a wedding of our friends here and uh, out in Portland, Oregon, and we flew to Seattle because we had family in Vancouver, family in Portland. Seattle's halfway between the two. Our family in Vancouver came down to Seattle And then we were going to drive down to Portland, go to the wedding, then drive all the way back to Vancouver and spend a week up there, a week down here, a week up there. All good. Well, 
if you know something about Northwest United States and the west of Canada, it's the coffee capital of the world, or at least of the Western Hemisphere. It's unbelievable. At that point in time, 10 years ago, I had never had a cup of coffee. Yes, that is true. No TV, no coffee. Okay. I'm like not an American here. Um, not because I'm against caffeine or anything. I just never had coffee, never drank it, just didn't like it, whatever. So our cousins in Vancouver owned at that time one of the top 10 coffee shops in the Western Hemisphere, ranked by USA Today. Now, can you imagine the best coffee shop in the world, and I don't drink coffee? So he, we go and we meet in Seattle, and he says this. He said, Bill, Seattle is the birthplace of good elite coffee. I don't even know what bad coffee or good coffee is. He goes, much less elite coffee. He goes, why don't we go on a coffee crawl? I go, okay, whatever that means, I'm in. So we go to four or five of the best coffee shops in Seattle. And he buys four or five coffees. Now, think about it, five bucks a clip, this gets expensive. And I'm thinking, well, I'll drink it. And so I drink it. And he goes, no, 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 you just take a sip. Well, I'm too much, I got some Scott in me, and so I gotta, if I'm gonna pay for it, I'm gonna drink it. So I drink it. Then we go to the next place, he finds these four or five different blends. And he goes, you take this one, just sip it. I drink the whole thing. <laughs> go to the next one. We did just five different coffee shops, so I have five double espressos in a body that's never even had a cup of regular decaf coffee. So, you know what happens. This goes crazy, and this goes crazy. And I've got a wedding to go to tomorrow. Well, tomorrow comes, and the wedding was fine, and somehow I recovered. Whatever, great wedding, wonderful wedding. <laughs> and then we go up to Seattle, to the home of one of the top 10 coffee shops, and we get there, and you know what my cousin, Elizabeth's cousin does? He hands us a debit card for the coffee shop. He says, you can buy anything in here you want, come meet us in the morning, then go sightseeing, then come in the afternoon, have lunch, go sightsee. You don't spend any money, come here. I'm thinking, I've got a debit card of the best coffee shop in the world, and I hate coffee. <laughs> so, and now I really hate coffee after what happened three or four days before. So I get there, and I buy orange juice with my debit card. And everybody's mocking me, hey, orange juice. And you know what I finally did is I finally went to the barista, and I said, put my orange juice in a coffee cup. <laughs> so I walked around with my coffee cup, saying hi and drinking my orange juice. This is true. This, I can't make this stuff up. Here's the point. His coffee shop was about coffee. And I didn't like it, but I pretended I liked it. I pretended I was a great coffee drinker because the cups are fogged and you can't see inside them, but I had orange juice in them. There are many people that come to church that pretend, and I'm not mocking you, but the reality is you're not after Christ. You don't care about Christ. You just care about the atmosphere. You care about everything about it, or you care about ha making happy your wife or your husband or your children or your parents or whatever it is. And the reality is you're drinking orange juice. You're doing your own thing.
but it appears to us and to everyone else that you love Jesus. Let me tell you that I don't know that you love Jesus or you don't love Jesus because you're sitting here, you're watching on the live stream. That's between you and God. But let me tell you this, on the second Easter of this year, now is the time to love Jesus. Now is the time to believe in Jesus because he is worthy and worth being praised as we just sang about, is he not? And I don't want you to leave here today until you get that, until you understand that. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't say come to a place where believers are and you will be saved. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The road is narrow, Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. The reason the road is narrow to the kingdom is not because a few people will go there. It's because you have to go there one at a time. You can't take someone else with you into the kingdom of God. You can bring them to the door, but you can't take them in. It's their belief, your belief in Jesus Christ that gets you through the door. It's not my belief for you. It's not your son's belief for you, your mother's belief, your wife's belief. It is your belief. Each one of us have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. I just want you to know that today. Don't leave here without knowing it. In a few moments, we'll have people here that come down to pray. Let's just bow our heads for a moment.